Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome up Pastor Mike this morning. We have uh, just this week and next week in our study of Joshua, we want to look at uh, the two sermons that Joshua preached at the end of his life. He's probably about 100 years old at this point. And he is uh, sharing first uh, in chapter 23, he's sharing first with the elders and the leaders of Israel, and then he has a sermon to all of the people. So let's read God's word together. Uh, It's on your bulletin. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage. I think I'm going to get my coffee here so I can keep going. All right, let's go after this. I like it when you read with me. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand. Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Now Joshua is one of the huge, huge heroes of faith in the Bible. And you may think in some ways, well, that's great that he was such an amazing man of faith. But the truth is that the principles that he shares and the way that he he reveals his intimacy and relationship with God is the way that you can become one of those great heroes of the faith. I mean, you may never have a book in the Bible named after you. They're all closed up now. But you could be this amazing hero who leaves a legacy 
for your children, your grandchildren. You become a heroic father, heroic mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, friend, whatever it is. But you begin to move from being sort of like a caboose on the train that everybody else is pulling to being a locomotive who's pulling the train. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a seriousness in you about beginning to hear what God says about the path that you're to walk. It's an interesting thing to have the testimony of a man who's 100 years old. Um, One old pastor said it this way, people tend to die in the same way that they have lived. And as one who has done, I've been in pastoral ministry for, for about 34 years, and I've done hundreds of funerals, and I can tell you, by experience, that you see at the end of someone's life how they have lived. You've seen those who have been faithful and those who haven't. You've seen those who die lonely and alone and those who die surrounded with the investment that they've had in family and friends and their community. And it's so much better to have lived a life that looks forward. One of the keys that you see of Joshua as this heroic man of faith is he's He's not looking back in the way that lots of old people look back. Sometimes you get in the presence of someone who's older and they're just cranky and they're just, they're just complaining. They're telling how they used to walk uphill and uphill to school and uphill back home from school and <laughs> how there was snowing in July and, you know, all of this stuff. And you're sitting there going, you know, I don't even want to listen to you. But here's what Joshua, a hundred-year-old man, says he talks about the future. See, he's, he, even though he knows he's going to die, he's looking to the future. He's looking to what he's laid of a foundation for the sons and the daughters, for the grandsons and granddaughters and the great-grandsons and the great-granddaughters. And he's looking forward to people he'll never meet. And yet he has in his heart because he has spent his time in intimacy with God. This is what happens. God says, I will share my secrets with those who love me. He will allow you, if you're a person of really great faith, he will allow you to see what he's going to do with your life. God doesn't let a single tear or a single seed of your life fall to the ground that isn't invested. You should not be one who wastes your sorrows on complaining and criticizing. You should be one who says, Lord, what... What are, you, what are your purposes? What do you want to do with my life? And that's what Joshua did. Even to his last breath, he was preparing for the plans of God that he himself would not even get to experience. It's interesting. Sometimes when older people talk to you, they'll say something like, there's, you know, there's really no substitute for experience. And when you're young, you just want to punch them in the nose or knock their walker out of their hand or whatever. <laughs> Because, I mean, you don't do it because you're nice, but, uh, <laughs> but you're thinking about it, you know, because you're like, I don't have any experience. Why are you saying this to me? And it can be, it can be such a, a, a downer kind of accusation, but the older you get, you start to realize how much experience means, how important it is to have people in your life who have experience and wisdom. Now, people who are poisonous, and complaining and negative all the time, run from them. But people who are looking forward and who are speaking to you out of the wisdom of their experience with God, and that's what, 
That's what Joshua did. Do you understand? He wasn't a military commander only. He was an intimate of the Father. He was an intimate of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Moses was in the tent and the the glory of God was with him in the tent, Joshua was right there with him. When the burning bush and God spoke from a burning bush, Joshua was right there with him. He had spent his whole life experiencing the presence of God. And he brings it to bear as he ends his life. You know, there's a wisdom that comes that Joshua speaks of here. And, it's, and wisdom is so much better than fear. Because wisdom doesn't discount caution. But it doesn't paralyze you into inactivity or passivity. Wisdom allows you to go forward. And what, what Joshua is sharing is he's sharing a lifetime of what it is to have victory what it takes to get the victory, what it takes to maintain the victory, and then how to finish well. If any of those resonate with you, that's what these sort of three movements that he has in his sermon that we're going to share together. The first is this. Every single great man or woman of faith understood how grace works. They understood the concept of grace. They understood how to look at their life through the perspective of grace. In verses 3 and 5, Joshua talks about everything that the Lord did to reclaim the land for them. Everything was a work of the Lord, that they walked into what He had already done for them. That, That He understood, Joshua understood, that all of His life was a life that was lived in the grace of God. Now, it's important that you know, I know it's Sunday morning, and doing theology is always hard, but I'm going to give you a little theology because I'd like you to understand this. Most of us, what we do is we live our lives on the, in a sense, a continuum or a, a framework of justice and injustice, or another way to put it is right and wrong, and then another way to put it is fair and unfair. You don't have to even teach little kids. They will begin to tell you how unfair you are. Like, I mean, at Christmas, if you give one of your kids more presents than the other kid, they will look at it and say, it's unfair. Sister got 12, I got four. Of course, the four costs more than the 12. But it doesn't matter. It's unfair. She got more than me. So many of us live our whole lives in this kind of Break your very soul system of, is it just or is it unjust? Is it fair? Is it unfair? Is it right or if it's wrong? The, the truth is that when you cry out for the justice that someone else you know, needs to give you, you're forgetting that that means the justice comes back to you. When you say it's unfair that somebody gets more than you, then it's unfair that you got more than somebody else. It's a system that utterly and completely destroys us. It breaks us. It spiritually bankrupts us. You will not be able in any way ever to stand before God on the basis of justice. If so, you will be punished. 
If, you're, if you stand before God on the basis of right or wrong, you're wrong. If you stand on the, on the whole thing of fairness and unfairness, your sins will find you out. For if you have broken one commandment, you have broken all the commandments. And so God came along and he established a completely different category. A category that's not justice and not injustice. It's not that it's unjust. It's just a whole new category. And it's called grace. And grace and mercy are neither justice nor injustice. They're neither about right or what's wrong or about what's fair or unfair. It's a whole new category. And for example, mercy could be defined this way. That you don't receive what you deserve. And grace could be defined this way, that you receive what you don't deserve. That you're given a gift. You're given something you haven't worked for. It's unmerited. It's favor from God that is completely on the basis of his love for you, not on your performance with him. <laughs> Most of us, as Christians, what I, I find in my experience is people live more on the basis of mercy. Oh, God, please don't let this consequence come upon me. You know, even when we're kids, oh, God, if you'll just let the teacher not turn in the homework, I will serve you forever. <laughs> or if you'll make her forget this test or whatever it is. That's mercy. You're asking not to receive what you deserve. The problem with many of us is we live our lives doing whatever we want, but not wanting the consequences or the punishment of that, so we live our lives mostly on the basis of mercy. There's even a saying that goes around that many of us have adopted, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. So what happens is, you're constantly doing whatever you want, whatever to the right or to the left that you want, and then you're asking to have no consequences. Or you're asking... To have mercy. Well, that's not living, friends. That's, that's keeping you alive, but it's not living. Living is when you live in the grace. Living is when you live a life that's gifted to you. When you live a life and you see the blessings of the Lord and the favor of the Lord, it's neither justice nor injustice. It's a whole new messed up category. That he began to believe, like Joshua believed, that every single thing that he went through was the grace of God. Now, Job believed this too, and other leaders and heroes of faith in the Old Testament understood this, but Job put it so perfectly. Job said it this way, I came into the world naked. I'm going to go out of this world naked. Whatever he gave me is grace. Whatever he takes away is grace. You see, because it was grace, Job could say he gave it, and Job could say he takes it away. And then he could say, whether he gives it or he takes it, I will bless his name. That's grace. What is just, that was unfair, God. And what, what it all boils down to is something really pretty simple. It's about most of us think we have a certain life that we deserve. And when that life doesn't happen, we find someone to blame. Now, let me give you an example. My wife has completely ruined my sports watching. 
Okay? Now I watch all these renovation shows on HGTV. All right? So, every, I mean, I love the end, the reveal. I don't always like the middle, but I like the end. Sometimes we record it and just go to the end. But I like the end and stuff. I like seeing what it was before, and I like seeing it after. But there's almost a common phrase that is used in all of those shows that really gets my attention. This is the dream kitchen that you deserve. This is the dream house that you deserve. You understand what happens when you get that in your mind? This is the dream kitchen. That as this is the dream house, the dream car. This is the dream closet of clothes that I deserve. This is the seventh piece of cheesecake that I deserve. When you get that in your mind, what happens when someone takes it away from you? You took away what I deserved. So suppose a flood comes and wipes away your dream kitchen. You're not going to say the Lord gives. You're going to say the Lord took it away. And now I'm complaining because I deserved that dream kitchen. Because I deserved that dream car. Because I deserved that dream job. What Job and Joshua understood and what Joshua is making known here is his dream job was given to him by the Lord. And the Lord led him into victory and the Lord used defeat to reveal where he didn't deserve anything. And yet Joshua kept going. He kept doing a life of grace. And so at the end of his life, he was able to say this. God has not failed to keep one of the promises that he gave to us about this good land. See, if you're not living through the spectacles of grace, then all you'll see is what God is taking away of what you deserve. And you say to me, but I worked for that. Well, who gave you the ability to do that work? Who gave you the opportunity to do that work? Matter of fact, That very breath that you had to take to do that work is the breath that God himself gave to you. And what Joshua did here, and what I ask of you as a man or a woman of faith to step into is say, all of my life is a life of grace. The Lord gave and the Lord take away. I was naked when I came in. I'll be naked when I go out. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, what happens... Are you tracking with me in this? What happens, though, is that the taking away, generally speaking, reveals the brokenness of our hearts. When I was first learning about supernatural ministry, and I was just starting to really experience healings and prophecy and, and, and things of the Lord that were so utterly wonderful, I got a chance to go to Columbia. And I was in Cali when the cartel was coming down. And it was, one of the most, it was one of the most chaotic times and dangerous times. And yet in the midst of it, the Holy Spirit was moving. A whole city was being transformed by the power of God. I went to, a, I went to a, or actually helped lead a prayer gathering that was an all-night prayer gathering in a stadium. 48,000 people showed up for prayer. All night, there were healings, there were deliverances, there were salvations. Well, some of the police officers got so overwhelmed by the spirit that they dropped their guns and ran to the front. And it was just one of the most amazing times. And I was I was ministering in this one church, and 
as people came forward for prayer, 350, 400 people came forward for prayer. And the Lord led me to pray for each one of them individually. I, I laid hands and prayed for each one of them. Every single one of them was instantaneously healed. Ever, I've never seen anything like it before, and I've not seen anything ever like it since. But that night, it was healing night, and everybody got healed. And I remember as I was going through it, I was so overwhelmed by the mercy and the compassion of Jesus for the pain of his people. And I myself, as I was ministering, felt so unworthy even to be his instrument. And I could feel this was the Lord. It had very little to do with me. I just got to be there. But after it was over, I began to recount the story because nobody that I knew was there with me. And I began to recount the story. And, and secretly, I will say to you, I thought I was going to become like Benny Hinn and have a worldwide minister. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to have a jet, you know, and I'm going to, no, I don't think that. We get a white suit. No. Uh, I mean, I just, I, all these illusions of grandeur started to fill my mind. And at first, when I would tell the story, I'd tell how Jesus healed. And then I started telling the story about how Jesus healed, but Mike was there. And then Mike got bigger and bigger in the storytelling. Oh, I laid hands on him. I heard this. I said this. I did that. I went into the worst depression I probably have ever felt. It felt like I'm just a funk. So intense. And I went to trusted people, and they heard from the Lord for me, and they said, you stole his glory. And, and I knew, if you know your Bible, you know he shares his glory with no one. And that's one of the worst things you could do. I wondered if he might just strike me right there. But instead, what he did was this. He said, this is what I'm capable of doing in you and through you. But you don't have the capacity because of your brokenness to contain it. And he began a process of going after my character. He can do anything, but he does it through people who will give all the glory to him, who recognize, I don't heal people because I deserve it, and you, they don't get healed because they deserve it. You get healed because he deserves it, because he paid for it, because he made it a reality for you. And you get to participate in his healing as long as he gets all the glory. That's what it means to be somebody who actually lives by grace. If you're going through a hard time, give him glory. If you're going through a great time, give him glory. But what happens to so many of us is when it's good or it's bad, we say he gave us or he took it away but we don't necessarily give him glory for either. And we get mad if he takes it away. Because how can you do that to me? This is the life I deserve. Joshua never did that. Joshua lived out of the grace of God. He saw the victory at Jericho as grace, and he saw the defeat at Ai as grace. He saw the failure with the Gibeonites as grace, but he also saw, saw the glorious victory over the five kings and winning all the battles over the 31 kings. Every single aspect of it he knew was part of the process, that God had his purposes. I, I can say to you, there's not a tear you've ever cried that God wants to waste. And there's not a seed of investment you've ever sown that God wants to just come to nothing. He is the God who has a relationship with you from the future. 
He already knows who you will be. He already knows what you need to get there. The problem is you keep resisting him. You keep thinking, I deserve this. Do you know what complaining is? I, I ha- complaining is basically saying I have a life I don't deserve. And I need a life that I really do deserve. And as long as you live that way, you will never be satisfied. It's only when you begin to say, I'm living in a whole new category. I'm living in a category of grace. Am I making sense to you? So what happens is when you live in that category of grace and you're not trying to get away with things and you're not just trying to get forgiveness, but you're starting to live in his favor and you're living in his, 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 his blessing, then you begin to realize that he's not looking for superficial obedience. He's not looking for you to align when it's convenient. He's looking for yieldedness. He's actually looking for an unconditional surrender. And what comes from that is a true spiritual obedience. Look in verse 6. He says to his people, be strong. And then he says to them, and be careful, be precise. Do this right. Why is he saying that? Not because that gives them identity. Not because that gives them affection. Not because he's doing that for their sake. Because once you step out of the 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 authority of the word of God. And once you step into your own independence, then you get to live the life that that independence will incur. And oftentimes God will allow you to go do whatever it is your heart thinks it wants to do because you will not learn without failure. I can't tell you the number of people come to me and say, why didn't God stop me from marrying this person? said, because he had to show you your heart. And now he wants to heal both your heart and your marriage. Are you willing? But that same resistant heart oftentimes that got him into trouble now wants to be the heart that saves themselves from their own trouble, but they want to save themselves, which means run away, run to another bad relationship, run to another bad situation, not realizing The problem is you, not the situations. And so there's a need, friends, there's a need for an understanding of what it is that God is asking when he asks for spiritual obedience. When he says to you, be strong, what he's saying there is fear is not the way to be obedient. See, the person who obeys because they're afraid of what's going to happen is still obeying only for their own sake. If all I'm doing is saying, well, God will get me if I don't do this, then the only person I'm really concerned about is me. It's not an act of love. It's not a fruit of intimacy. It's now an attempt to keep God and his power at arm's length because I'm afraid of him. So the Lord is calling you and calling me throughout the Old and the New Testament to begin to get a power source that is not fearful. To get a power source that's stronger than fear. And at the same time, he doesn't say throw all your understanding to the wind. He wants you to be strong and wise at the same time. Fear is limiting. Fear is inhibiting. But care and caution is wisdom. Having had experiences, not repeating those is a wise thing. 
Well, he says, be careful to love the Lord your God. There's a precision, there's a preciseness to love that he says. And part of it is, he says, to this group of people, and the, the reason is, is somewhat staggering of why he says what he says. For some reason, the Lord staked out a territory from the other side of the Jordan to the Mediterranean, somewhere up to the north toward Lebanon and south towards Egypt. He said, this is the territory I'm staking out in the whole earth. And out of this territory, I'm going to save the whole world. But in order for that to happen, I have to have a people there, and I have to have a people who are covenantly related to me. And out of that group of people and out of that land and out of their descendants will come the Messiah. You understand, God was orchestrating your relationship with him all the way, all the time. And so what he's saying to this group of people is, I've asked you to do a task. I've asked you to accomplish something for the whole world. He couldn't tell them all that he was going to accomplish through them, but he was accomplishing it through them. And one of the things that you begin to realize, if you're going to be a kingdom person, if you're going to participate and align yourself with God's kingdom purposes, which is, which is really, friends, this is where the blessing and the satisfaction and the fulfillment comes from. But if you're going to be in line with it, you have to realize that there's always both the positive and the negative. That there's a thing you have to receive and there's a thing you have to put off. That unless you do that, you're going to be stuck. For example, there are groups of Christians that all they are about the no. We don't do this. We don't do that. When I was a kid, they used to say, we don't cuss, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls that do. It was great theology. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all about what we don't do, what, we, what we're not allowed to do. Do you understand? If your whole life is about no, then you have no life. You know, if your whole life is about what you can't do, then you're only sin-focused. <laughs> That's a loud one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, then you're only focused on sin. And guess what? When you're focused on sin, sin will overwhelm you. Like if you get to the place you say, I've, I've had victory over 999 sins, you realize I've got 1,000 more to go. <laughs> or even that part of you that has to tell everybody, I've just got over 99 you know, sins, is sin in itself. Because <laughs> it's the need to say, look how I've saved myself. See, again, that's not grace. Grace is as broken as you might be, as bankrupt as you might be, you are absolutely loved. I love the gospel. I love the grace of God when it says, I am so sinful that he had to die for me, but I am so loved that he chose to die for me. I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to say, look at all the things I don't do in order that you see what a great Christian I am. That's not even an issue. In grace, there's no, there's no justification by comparison. Justification by comparison is still a justice injustice. It's a right wrong. It's a fair unfair. And what happens is, if I compare favorably to you, there will always be someone else that I don't compare as favorably to. Because justice is simply this, 100% or nothing. Anything that's not right is wrong. Anything that's not fair is unfair. There's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland injustice. 
There's no neutral territory. If you're wrong, you're wrong. If you're unfair, you're unfair. If you're unjust, you're unjust. There's not a little bit of justice. It's either all justice or nothing. So this is the only way that any of us can have intimacy with God is through grace. Now I am am established, I am identified with God through Christ, not through me, but through Him. And nobody can take it away from me. But then out of that has to flow this sense that it can't just be me not doing things. As a matter of fact, Paul says it this way, you're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you're to say no and make no provision for trying to satisfy or save your life through things of the flesh. You begin to realize that those appetites are destructive, that those old desires lead you down a road that's not good for you. And you begin to trust in and believe that your real life is found in Christ. It has to be both. This isn't just an Old Testament idea. This is a New Testament idea. In 1 John, John goes at great lengths to give three proofs of someone who is truly born again, of someone who has really become a follower and a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the first of those proofs is really a powerful one. It says love. You have to have a love for others like Jesus has for yourself. This is why it's always confused me, even since I was a boy, how churches could be racist. How in any way that a church who believes the Bible, who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, could in any way look at anybody else and say, I'm better than you. Or I'm more qualified. I'm, in grace, it's not the qualifying factor is how broken you are. The qualifying factor is how sinful you are. In grace, the qualifying factor is how bankrupt you are. There's no comparisons in grace. As a matter of fact, think about it this way. When Jesus said love, he said love your brothers and sisters because they are of the family of faith, so there's love for them. Then he says love your neighbors, which I believe he means those who are kind of outside of the family who might believe somewhat differently than you do. And, and for those of us who understand this, it might mean that we don't approve of everything that our neighbors either believe or do, but we accept them because acceptance doesn't mean approval. But then he goes so far as to say Anybody can love those who love them back. He says, you love your enemies. I take it from that. He says, i got to love everybody that breathes. Anyone that has breath, he's saying, I've got, to, I, I've got a call on my life to love. And what he's saying is, in the way that I've loved them, I want to give my love for you, uh, through you to them. And John says, if that's not in you, you're not even a believer. So how is it that I can look at somebody else and say, I don't need to love you, or look at some culture and say, because you're from that culture, I don't have to love you, or I look at your past and say, well, because of your past, I don't have to love you. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, even if they're your enemy, you understand, he knew exactly what his disciples were going to do, and yet he invested and loved them to the full. He knew Judas Iscariot was his betrayer. He let Judas know he knew he was his betrayer. He knew Peter was going to be his, his denier, his, his abandonment, his one who would curse even his name. And yet he said, when I restore you, when I restore you. He knew every one of his disciples would flee, and yet still he poured into them. 
when on the night he was betrayed, I, I don't know if you remember this from the, often the ritual of the Lord's table. It says, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread with his betrayers. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. You understand, we're not talking about a superficial faith. We're talking about having an understanding that's so different from anybody else's in the world. Your life is a life of grace. You have been ripped out of the justice system. You've been ripped out of justifying yourself by how right or wrong you are. And you've been placed in the favor of God. And it wasn't free to him. Grace, another way of looking at grace is grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a little anachronism for that word. And to not understand that and then to look around and be self-protective and fearful And to look at people to see what you can get from them instead of what you can give to them is not compatible with the gospel or with the church of Jesus Christ. Does it cost? Yeah. It costs everything. It's not a simple obedience. It's a spiritual heart obedience. John said, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. Are you hearing me? I know I've stepped on a few toes, but there is healing afterwards for the toes. Well, let me, let me just hit this one more time, one more way. Love and devotion to someone demands that you become very particular. If you love someone, you don't, you don't just love them in a random sort of way. You love them in a way that connects. Think about this. I've watched this over the years. Smelly young men fall in love. Rough hair. Don't even comb their hair. Don't put on clothes that match. All of this kind of stuff. As soon as they fall in love, they become incredibly particular. They comb their hair. They put gel in it, you know. They put on clothes that a woman would like. And then this rough, smelly teenager smells like a flower. And you can smell them a mile away sometimes because they're in love and they want to attract. So suddenly this rough, raw young man becomes very particular. Why? Because he's devoted. And so everything changes for the one he's devoted to. You understand, this isn't, this isn't legalism. This is love. Love requires devotion. Love requires that you be precise. You understand, those of us who've been married a long time, you've got to get this, that every thought you have, you're thinking through your spouse's mind. Like, everything I ever do, I'm going, what will Lisa think about this? And then I have to decide, can I bear her wrath? (laughs) And do this anyway, you know? Or... Maybe I shouldn't, you know, kind of a thing. But there's never a time with my beloved wife that I'm not thinking, what will she think about this? You understand? That's what Joshua was saying. Joshua's not trying to put up a legalism, a no, you can't do this, a fence that you can't cross. He's trying to say there's a yes and there's a no. There's a preciseness 
to this, and there's a preciseness to love. Well, the final thing on this is that Joshua understood and he related to people about covenant. And what happens with many of us, because people's word means very little today, is we don't understand the seriousness of a covenant. God made a covenant with his people, and Joshua is reminding them. See, as he's looking forward, the way that he brings the past into the present and the future is he talks to them about what God has promised. And he's saying to them, in my lifetime, I've seen God fulfill everything that he said. So I want you to understand this, that as you go forward, God is committed to his word. He's committed to the promises he's made. But that also means that he's equally committed that if you do not obey, if you do not stay in alignment, if you wander to the right, and if you wander to the left, then he's just as committed to that part of the covenant as he is to the blessing part. That's hard for us to hear. We don't like that. We like the blessing part. But we don't ever really like to hear, if you wander away, if you go to the right, if you go to the left, then these things will take place. I cannot tell you the number of times over these years of being a pastor that people come and said, why is this happening to me? Why are these things taking place? Now, sometimes it has been that they were blameless and what was going on was a test of their faith. What was going on was unfair or unjust, but they were more often than not, they had caused their own consequences because they failed to do the simple things that God wanted them to do. Do you understand I want you to understand, you will never know the secret will of God for your life till, you're, till you are doing the revealed will of God for your life. And there are people who want to know God's secrets but don't want to say yes to what he's already revealed. God doesn't move on to the next step. He stays right where you are, right where you're resistant, right where you're stubborn. Well, the people of of. Israel, the the people that Joshua led, they found out how God was committed to his covenant. The northern tribes rebelled against God as they divided the kingdom. They set up their own gods. They went back and they worshiped the gods of the Canaanite, and God dispersed them throughout the earth. The, The people of Judah, the children of Judah, they stayed faithful in many ways during the reign of David or during the reign of Solomon, or there were certain kings who revived the the worship of the Lord, there were times when they utterly and completely forgot that there was even a book of the law. There were times when the, the, the temple and the sacrifices were so prevalent, but there was no obedience, and God said, your, your sacrifices are like a stench in my nose. And so he took them into captivity. They went to Babylon. He didn't take them there simply to punish them. He took them there to correct them. He took them there to discipline them because when they returned was within 400 years was going to be the birth of Jesus. And everything that he was doing, there was purpose. But what I want you to understand, if, if you really do believe the Bible, and I do, and if you really do believe God is a covenant-making God, then if God says the positive and the negative, he's equally committed to both. That he is true to his word for the positive and he's true to his word for the negative. 
You might say to me, oh, this is disastrous. And it is because how many of us in this room realize we've gone to the left, we've gone to the right, we've wandered here, we've wandered there. There, In in times of blessing, we got... We got filled with making things that weren't supposed to be ultimate, ultimate. We made treasures out of our houses and our designer kitchens and whatever else we've got that we think we deserve. It's dangerous to live in this world, truthfully, because the things of this world grow incredibly precious to us. So why would Joshua, why would God make such a covenant when we can't keep it? Well, because he was going to bring another Joshua. And this other Joshua that he brought was very precise. See, from the beginning, God didn't speak to Israel like a nation. He spoke to Israel like a relation. He said, when Israel was young, I called him from Egypt to be my son. I taught him how to walk. And I lifted him up in my arms. Then as Israel got older in the teenage years and rebelled against God and rebelled against the Father, then God brought another image in Hosea. And Hosea, the prophet, was told by God, go and marry a, marry a prostitute. He said, the prostitute represents Israel. You will represent my love. And so Hosea goes and, and marries a prostitute. Well, the prostitute can't keep faithful in the marriage. And she goes right back to prostituting. And Hosea is incensed because Hosea is a holy man. He's a righteous man. And God says, no, Hosea, go and buy her back. That's the kind of love he said I have for my people. See, all along he knew they couldn't keep, they couldn't keep the blessing and they couldn't keep the woe of the, of the covenant. And so he brought it all on Jesus, his own son. I want to read one thing to you as we pray. One of my favorite theologians wrote it somewhat this way. It's a little bit paraphrased. He said, only Jesus has done exactly what Joshua asked his people to do. He was careful. He was precise. Remember he said, I haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, to obey it all. But instead of blessing and communion, Jesus said to the Father, give me what is due them, and then give them what is due me. He came under the judgment curse of God. See, this is what the part you have to understand. It's so beautiful and, and, and yet fearful at the same time. Our Heavenly Father was resolutely committed to His promise and to His covenant to bring judgment and punishment upon those who appear in His sight clothed in sin. This is... I don't know, this might be a new way to think about this. But see, if you go before the Father, and everyone will, and you are clothed in your own sins, then He is committed by covenant to then bring His wrath and His judgment on you clothed in your sin. But what the gospel is, is that our Joshua, Jesus, clothed Himself in your sin. And the father said, though this is my son, he is clothed in sin. So I will bring all the wrath and all the judgment. I will exhaust it in him so that those now who are clothed in him, there is therefore now no condemnation. That is so powerful. Do you understand why Paul says, put off your old self clothed in sin. 
put on Christ clothed in righteousness so that when you stand before the Father, you receive what He is due because He's already received what you were due. Will you stand with me? Can you understand what I'm saying? This Three of you, that's all I need. No, it's not. Let me just say, you're here today at the invitation of Jesus, our Joshua. He's asking you to rise up as a hero of the faith. He's asking you to, to step out of this, you know, just, unjust, right, wrong, and to throw yourself fully into his grace and his mercy. Mercy for your past. Grace for your future. He's asking you to rise up and say, I don't just want to be superficially obedient. I don't want to just, you know, avoid the consequences of sin. I've had a heart that has become devoted to the Lord. There's a preciseness to my heart now. And part of that comes as you realize, I could never have kept that covenant. He knew it all along. And so his plan was that his own son would be clothed in my sin so that now I can be clothed in his son. And when you get that and you start to live from that place, you live from a place of grace. There are commanded blessings that are ahead for your life. That's what Joshua was telling this stuff. So that your latter days can be far greater than your former days. Would you receive this now? Would you just hold out your hands with me? Lord, uh, I'm so overwhelmed by the fact that you clothed yourself in my sin so that I can clothe myself in you. That this is not justice. This is not injustice. This is grace. This is so amazing. I've spent a lot of my life complaining about the injustices done to me. A lot of my life about what's wrong with the world. Never really focusing fully. Never giving myself over that everything, every breath I take, every moment that I have is grace. Lord, I ask even now that you would would see in us, that you would stir in us by your spirit a spiritual obedience like we've never had before. That we will rise up whatever our past has been, whatever we thought our future was, that we will rise up into the grace that you have for our future. That we will be people who leave legacies, who change history, that do the things like Joshua and others like him did. And even if it's in our own small circle, that that, that circle will, will show that we, we die like we lived. And we lived like we died. Come, Lord Jesus. Rise up in your people. Rise up in us. We don't don't want to be faint-hearted in these days or resistant in these days, but we want to be strong and careful. We want to be strong in the love of God. We want to be salt and light in the midst of this world. You didn't tell us to separate. You told us instead to come and be salt. Come and be light. So we come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Uh, Hug a few people on your way out. We'll see you next week.